Let's go ahead and open our Bibles to the book of Revelation. We are well into the what we call the tribulation period in the book of Revelation. If you remember, chapters 6 through 19 really uh, comprise uh, what we would call Daniel's 70th week. It's a time of great tribulation, a time that would be so awful in God's judgment upon a world that has rejected his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus said that if, this, if he didn't come to end this time of great tribulation, that there no flesh, no flesh would survive it. It will be that bad. And as we have gone through the seal judgments, and as we've gone through uh, most of the trumpet judgments, and we're going to be looking at uh, uh, the... The, we've already looked at the fifth and the sixth trumpet. Um, we'll be looking at the seventh in a week or two from now. But as we look into this, we, we just see God's wrath being poured out upon a world that has rejected his son. And to me, that is a, a, a horrible thing. But we have to understand that God is just. And just as much as God loves you and I, we have to understand that God also hates sin. And because he is a God of love, he has to judge sin. There's no way around that. And nobody likes to talk about that. But see, that is the teeth. That, that is the teeth of the gospel. It's not just God will forgive you and everything will be okay. That is true, but that's only part of the gospel. It's good news because first there was bad news. The bad news was that I was on my way to hell. Can anybody attest to that? I remember growing up and the first 24 years of my life, I didn't know God, but I knew he was there. But I didn't believe in him. It's kind of a paradox, isn't it? I knew he was there, but I didn't believe in him. It's sort of like seeing the color blue, but really not acknowledging it. It's just kind of dumb, honestly. But God loves people, but he will. He is a God of judgment as well. And these chapters are no doubt very difficult, but we have to go through them. And I would encourage you that as we do go through them, let it examine you. Let it purify you. The word of God does that. It, it, it cleanses us from the defilement that we pick up in the world. That's why it's so important that we read it. So important that you read the word of God. More than any other book that you have, no, more than any other diet that you have that you spend time with, whether it's watching television or watching the news or anything like that, read the word of God more than all of that. And trust me, you will be better off for it. In fact, I would just encourage you not to watch the news at all. Just turn it off. Wouldn't that be a shocker? Fox, CNN, all of them, MSNBC and Fox, I said Fox, um, all of them, just turn it all off and just live your life <laughs> and you'll be much better for it and get your nose in the word and, and be refreshed, be encouraged. Um, I know that the more I've gotten into the word, the more I'm, my, my, I've, I've had a sense of peace. The more I'm in the word, the more peaceful I am inside because I'm, I'm reading his word. Do you want peace? Or do you want turmoil? I think we all want peace, don't we? So there's a, uh, there's a prescription here that I'm giving, okay? Read the word of God. Turn off everything else. There you go. There you go. There you go. Okay? Think about it. So we are now in this, this period, and as we approach this area of Scripture today, chapters 10 through 15, uh, a chaps, beginning with chapter 10, Chapters 10 through 15 are really what we would consider the midpoint of the tribulation period. Remember, it's a seven-year period. So right in the center of this 
seven-year period is when the Antichrist is finally going to show his true colors. From the very beginning, he allows the Jews, he makes a peace treaty with them, allowing them to build their temple, and everything's just going hunky-dory until the middle point. And we are right now around that middle point. We can't be too dogmatic about it, but basically chapters 10 through 15 are roughly that area in this midpoint, and we'll talk more about why that is true later on in the coming weeks. It'll become apparent to you that that is where we are at in the chronology of things. And so this morning, um, if you uh, go back to uh, Revelation chapter 8, verse 13, there was something that was spoken there. It says, and I looked, John says, and an angel flying through the midst of heaven sang with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. You remember that we've already looked at the first seven seals. Each, there's like three different waves. For those of you who are new today, there's three waves of judgment that are coming yet in the future. We've already looked at the seal judgments. They were seven distinct individual judgments upon the earth. But remember, the church has been removed prior to that. Because God will not allow his bride to go through these judgments because she's already been, uh, her sin has already been judged on the cross. There's no need to judge her. We are the believing remnant. And so God takes us to heaven with him. And what we know is the rapture of the church in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13 through 18. You can check that out for yourself, but that is where it's located. But the church is removed prior to all of this hell breaking loose on the earth. And it is a judgment of God. But the first seven seals we already looked at, and the first four trumpets we already looked at. So, And we've looked at uh, uh, trumpet, the fifth and the sixth trumpet. And in a couple weeks, we'll look at the seventh one. But the fifth and the sixth trumpet are also labeled the three woes. The three woes. And and I believe that they're called the three woes because, excuse me, that the, the judgments that were going on were ba- mainly toward the earth and the things on the earth. But when we get to these three woes, these fifth, sixth, and seventh trumpet judgment, it gets really personal. It gets really personal. If you remember in chapter 9 uh, that we looked at last week, uh, that whole first uh, half of the chapter, verses 1 through 12, that was the first woe, if you will, and it was about demonic activity upon the earth about demons being released and and torturing people on the earth, stinging them. We don't know exactly what what these creatures looked at. John tried very hard to describe them and had to use a lot of similes to try and describe. Well, they're like this. They're sort of like this. They're sort of like this. They're as this, but not quite because we've never seen these creatures before because God hasn't released them. But there is coming a time where he is going to release them. And you think demonic activity is rampant on the earth now. You have seen nothing yet. You've seen nothing. Because we've never seen a demon manifested. Well, maybe we have, and we just haven't noticed. But demons will be manifested in physical form, and they, people will see them, and people will be running from them. That's how horrible this time will be. And the second woe began in chapter 13 of, I'm sorry, uh, verse 13 of chapter 9. And that... Woe continues on until chapter 11, verse 14, which we'll get to in a week or two from now. Okay? And so, and this, and this woe is, again, this, this second woe, the sixth trumpet, is another demonic infestation, if you will. 
Some people have tried to claim that these, uh, these, hunt, these hundreds of thousands of horsemen are physical beings. As I look at the description there, they defy anything we've seen before. So I think if John knew that they were horses and they were just normal men, he would have just said so. But again, he uses a bunch of similes to, to describe these creatures. So they are demonic, I believe. And that is what's coming upon the earth. And so we have these, these three woes. And, and I already mentioned this to you. The first one was in chapter 9, verses 1 through 11. We looked at that last week. We also looked at the beginning of the second woe, which was in Revelation 9, verse 13. And uh, that whole second woe really goes... Um, until we get to chapter 11, verse 14. And this will make sense as we go forward, um, as we go forward. In fact, if you would, just look with me. Just turn over to chapter 11 and look at verse 14. Chapter 11, verse 14. Notice what it says. It says, the second woe is past, and behold, the third woe is coming quickly. And so really what we see from uh, now go back to uh, chapter 9 and look at verse 12. We, we looked at this last week, but the fifth trumpet sounds in the beginning of chapter 9 there, and at the, at the very last, or the, the 12th verse of that chapter, one woe is passed. Behold, still two more woes are coming. And so we looked at the beginning of the second woe yesterday, or last, yesterday? Yeah, sure, why not? Uh, last week. And the third woe, we believe begins at the seventh trumpet when it's sounded, which is chapter 11, verse 15. We'll get to this, but just to kind of give you a high-level overview of where we're going, that seventh trumpet sounds, which is the beginning of the third woe, and I believe that that third woe really lasts. It's really hard to discern where that ends, but it basically unravels the final last seven uh, judgments upon the earth, and they are the worst. And they are the ones that are coming closer and closer together in frequency. Sort of like what Jesus said. They are like birth pangs. Ladies, if you've given birth, you've, you know this. Uh, as, birth, as, as you get closer to giving birth, the pain intensifies, the contractions get shorter and shorter uh, um, in, in, in duration. And so, something's happening. Something's happening. And so, we can see that these woes are coming. And in fact, um, we looked at the second one last week, and part of that woe was the Euphrates horsemen. We're calling them horsemen. We don't really know what these creatures are. Um, when you, again, you look at the definition of these things, and they just defy anything human that we've ever seen. And then we're also going to see as part of this second woe, we see in chapter 11, the, the plague that the two witnesses that are going to be on the earth during the tribulation, the things that they are going to unleash on the earth, they will be able to bring down fire from heaven. They'll be able to stop up heaven. They'll be able to bring floods, turn water into blood. There's going to be, and it sounds very much like Moses, sounds very much like Elijah, the Old Testament prophets. But let's go ahead and let's read together. And so let me just say this. One of the things about chapter 10 here is just like chapter 7, which was a chapter between the sixth and the seventh seal, there was an interlude or a pause in the action. 
And so we call these parenthetical chapters. It means that there's, it's material that's going on during that time that God fills us in on a little bit more about what's going on during that time period. And what we're looking at right now in chapter 10, chapter 10 until, um, um, until 11 verse 14 is really one parenthetical chapter. It's giving us information about what's happening around this midpoint of the tribulation period. And so let's go ahead and let's read it in its entirety, and then we're going to go back and we're going to look at it. So, Revelation chapter 10, it says, I saw still another mighty angel coming down from heaven clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was on his head, and his face was like the sun, and his feet like pillars of fire. He had a little book open in his hand, and he set his right hand, a right foot on the sea, and his left foot on the land, and he cried with a loud voice, as when a lion roars, when he cried out, seven thunders uttered their voices. Now when the seven thunders uttered their voices, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, seal up the things which the seven thunders uttered, and do not write them. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised up his hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things that are in it, the earth and the things that are in it, and the sea and the things that are in it, that there should be delay no longer. But in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel, which we have yet to get to, When he is about to sound, the mystery of God should be finished, as he declared to his servants the prophets. And then the voice which I heard from heaven spoke to me again and said, Go take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the earth. And I went to the angel and I said to him, Give me the little book. And he said to me, Take it and eat it, and it will make your stomach bitter, but it will be as sweet as honey in your mouth." Then I took the little book out of the angel's hand, and I ate it, and it was as sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach became bitter. And he said to me, you must prophesy again. And again, the angel's talking to John. You must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. Tongues and kings. Let's go back to the beginning again and look at this. Very interesting chapter. John says, I saw another mighty angel come down from heaven, clothed with a cloud. Now, some believe that this mighty angel is is Jesus. And there's some reasons why people might think that. And we're not going to spend a great deal of time on this, but it's worth looking at. Because uh, one thing you have to remember is, where is Jesus when this tribulation is happening on the earth? Where is he? Anyone? In heaven, that's right. Yeah, right, Becca. He's in heaven. And who's with him in heaven? The church. We, us, right? So we are with him. While this judgment is going upon the earth, we are caught up. The Bible says that we are raptured. We are harpazoed in the Greek. We're taken up to meet him in the air. We meet him in the clouds, and we're with Jesus forevermore until the end of that seven-year period. And then Jesus physically comes back to the earth, and guess who's coming with him? On white horses, you and I. That may sound funny to you, but you know what? Don't worry about it. When, it, when we get there, you're going to be like, oh, he really meant it. Because <laughs> I believe he does. And there's a lot more to that story, but we'll pause there. But this, I don't believe, is Jesus. Although there are some similarities. 
But we do know that Jesus is coming back, but not during the middle of this tribulation period. He's coming at the end when he comes to defeat Satan, the Antichrist, the false prophet, and the armies that have gathered against Jerusalem. He is going to defeat them in just a word. He's going to speak, and they are all going to be consumed instantly. But we look at this angel's description, and it, there's no wonder that we might consider that this might be Christ, because there are sim- similar physical characteristics uh, with Jesus. And anyone, honestly, who is in the presence of Jesus, including angels, wouldn't it be plausible that they share some of his likeness? Not completely like him, because there's only one, Jesus, God Almighty, in the flesh, but is it plausible that his, these beings that he's created have some semblance of him? I believe there is. And we see that in this, this angel, this mighty angel. It could even be Michael the archangel. We really don't know. We know that Moses, when he met with God on the mountain, remember in, in Exodus, when he received the Ten Commandments, his, fo- his face shone because he was in the presence of God for 40 days. I mean, the guy looked like, you know, can you imagine? He had to put a veil over himself to hide the, 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 the shining from his face because he was in his presence. But when we look at the cloud, we can see in Psalm 104, verse 3, it says, He lays the beams of his upper chambers in the water, speaking of God, who makes the clouds his chariot, and who walks on the wings of the wind. We know that in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, Daniel said, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, who, by the way, is God the Father, and they brought him near before him. <clears throat> so Daniel, back in the 7th century, 5th century, 6th century B.C., was speaking of the event when Jesus would return physically to the earth and his second coming physically to the earth. He speaks of him coming on the clouds of heaven. So is it any wonder that we, people might get confused that maybe, maybe this is Jesus? But I believe, it, again, it's just an angel. And we know in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, what does it say? that the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout and the voice of an archangel with the trumpet of God, the dead in Christ will rise. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up to meet him in the clouds, to meet Jesus in the clouds, and forever we will be with him. And the Bible says, now comfort one another with these words. Is that comforting to you? To know that you're going to be taken before wrath is poured out? It says in 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 9, For God has not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. It's not necessary for him to put you through the judgment. He paid the judgment for once and for all on the cross for you and I. There's no need for that. Does that make sense? And in Acts, when Jesus ascended... Acts chapter 1, verse 9, it says, Now when he had spoken these things, now this is after Jesus was resurrected, while his disciples watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by him in white apparel, these angels. And they said, yeah, the, the way he came, the way he left, is the same way he's coming. And Zechariah tells us, Zechariah 14 tells us that when Jesus comes back, he's coming back in the clouds, and he's going to set foot on the Mount of Olives. It's going to split in two. A few weeks ago, actually a couple months ago now, actually, um, we were in Israel, and we stood on the Mount of Olives, and that is going to happen right there on the Mount of Olives. It's going to split. He's going to touch down right there. He left from there when he ascended into heaven. He's coming back to the same place, and there's a lot of information about that, a lot of things written in the Bible. But then he also goes on, and he talks about that he... um, And a rainbow was on his head, 
a rainbow was on his head, and we know what the rainbow signifies. After the flood, remember, God spoke to Noah and gave him a promise that he would never flood the earth again with water. We've had local floods, but not a global flood. The global flood is a historical fact. They found seashells on top of Mount, uh, um, um, uh, uh, what's the big mountain there? Um, Mount McKinley? I mean, one of the big, the big mountains, they find sea animals fossilized up on those mountains. Hmm. Could it be that the world was flooded and the whole geography changed as those water reservoirs underneath where, where water was coming up and the water canopy from above depleting the ground and the ground sinking like this, creating, in a sense, mountains all by themselves and those sea creatures just lowering on top and being fossilized? Not a big stretch of the imagination, folks. Science backs it up. Science backs all of this up that's in the book of Genesis. Don't let anybody fool you. But the rainbow was a promise. And I love how he's sending this angel now, and he's where he has a rainbow on his head, which means it's a promise. God is not going to renege on his promises. God is going to make sure that all of his promises come to pass. And notice also he's got a face like the sun. We see a similarity of this in Revelation chapter 1, verse 16, when it describes the appearance of Jesus in his glorified state. What did it say? He had in his right hand seven stars, speaking of Christ, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun, shining in its strength. And so we can see how this could be. And, his, and, then, and then also, he has uh, feet like pillars of fire. What does Revelation chapter 1, verse 15 say? Just a verse before this. His feet, speaking of Christ, was like fine brass, was like fine brass, as refined in a furnace. And as we look at this angel and we compare him with the angel in Revelation chapter 5, they sound very similar but there's no reason to believe that they are, or there, there is no reason to believe that they are one, uh, but rather two separate angels. So we really don't need to spend any more time on that because it just an, is an angel, and um, and we'll look more at this in just a minute. Because if it was Jesus, I believe John would have just said, "Hey, it's Jesus, right?" He doesn't need to. Besides, the Book of Revelation is a is an unveiling. It's not a concealing. Now, are there things in it that are concealed that we still don't know? Yes, there are. There are things in the Bible like that. We'll get to that later. But it's to unveil him. So if this was him, I am certain that John would have said, this is Jesus. But I don't believe it is. Notice verse 2. He had a little book in his, open in his hand. The book was already opened. So here he has this book, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. And we'll discuss this little book when we get to verse 8, uh, verse eight later on. But it's interesting because in our current time that we live in, the Bible says that Satan is the ruler of this world. We know that God created the world, but because of sin and rebellion, we have basically forfeited that, and Satan has it under his rule right now. And Jesus didn't argue that with him, but it's only for a short time because when Jesus comes back in his second coming, Satan will be evicted. He hasn't been paying his rent. In New York State, you can stay in a house even though you've been evicted, but it's not going to happen here. You're not going to be able to have 30 or 90 days to kind of hang out and figure it out. No, you're, you're going, buddy. <laughs> you're going to be taken out. But when this angel puts his foot on the seas and he puts his foot on the land, what does it speak of? Authority. 
The heavens declare the glory of God, and the earth shows forth his handiwork. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, and all they that dwell are in it. All of them are his. All of them are his. The earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof. And we also see in Psalm 19 that I just spoke of, the heavens declare the glory of God. It all belongs to him, but soon the devil himself will be cast into the abyss. We'll see that when we get into Revelation chapter 20. And boy, what a happy day that's going to be. When our enemy, the one who has plagued our souls, plagued you know, all this time, he's going to be locked up for a time. The false prophet and the Antichrist, they will be thrown into the lake of fire known as Gehenna. That's the eternal state for the wicked dead. But God's going to save Satan for a while. He's going to put him into the abyss. He's going to put him in a dungeon in a sense. And he's going to be there for a thousand years while we enjoy the redeemed, rejoy time, enjoy time with Christ on the earth and the millennial reign of Christ. And at the end of that time, he will be released. But right now, it's under Satan's control, this earth, but not for long, because Jesus is going to interrupt that rental agreement very soon. Very soon. Notice verse 3, And he cried out with a loud voice, as when a lion roars. And when he cried out, the seven thunders uttered their voices. Thunder is often preceded by God's judgment. If you look in the Bible, even when uh, God gave to uh, Moses the Ten Commandments, what happened before he gave those Ten Commandments? There was thick, dark clouds. There was lightning. There was thunder and loud trumpets sounded on the Mount Sinai. That happened. And that was a foreboding. (laughs) And certainly as these seven thunders, they utter their voices. We don't know what they said because God didn't allow John to write them down for whatever reason. There's a mystery for you. Why is it that God reveals some things and not other things? They must not be necessary. Has what he has given to us, is it sufficient enough right now? Do we have enough to know and understand the plan of redemption? The plan of salvation? Yes, very much so. The Bible's very clear about those things, but it's a little unclear about other things. And why is that? Is it because God wants to keep it from us? No, he's like, you don't need to know that yet. You'll, you'll see. And let that be enough. Let that be enough for you. If God tells me I don't need to know something very patently, then I just, I'll rest in that. Because I trust him. Do you trust him? Yeah. And so... Verse 4, when the seven thunders uttered their voices, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, notice, seal up the things which the seven thunders uttered and do not write them. And again, there are mysteries in the Bible, but don't let that deter you from what God has clearly said concerning the things that we do understand. The major in the things that God has spoken very clearly and minor in the things that are um, not so clear. We don't have to uh, get all hung up on those things. And some people are even side, uh, they're kind of taken off course by the things that they don't know. Well, listen, focus on the things that are very clear and that are known because those are the things that are to the saving of the soul. Those are the things that are most important. Most important is the salvation of your soul. God loves you so much, what? That he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. That's a life that never ends. 
Would you rather live an everlasting life or everlasting contempt in hell? You make that decision. God does not make that for you. And I hope everyone here in this room and those online have made that decision today. That's the most important decision you'll ever make. More than who you're going to marry. More than the next car that you might buy. More than anything that you would purchase. Anything that you would do in this life. There's no greater thing than to know that you are one of God's children. Be a child of God. If you are not a child of God, cry out to him today. Don't wait until tomorrow because you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. Man, it is such a trip, isn't it? <laughs> uh, just last Saturday, I was, I was driving along a um, five-mile line to my home. And there was a, a bunch of crew, you know, ambulance and police cars everywhere down there by the high school. And I was wondering what was going on. I thought maybe it was a car accident. Some guy got hit by, on a bike. On a 10-speed on a, on a bike, he was biking, and somebody hit him. I don't know if he, I'm hoping he's well, but I don't know. But you know what? That can happen. So why are you playing Russian roulette today with what you don't know might happen, even on your way home from church today? You have no idea. My time is not in my hands. Our time is in God's hands. Only he knows the date it behooves us then to listen to him, right? Because why? Just because he's going to, he might, you know, send us to hell? No, because of his great love. Let his love be the thing that re- and, and just grabs a hold of you. What did Paul say? The love of God constrains me. That's what provokes me to go out and share with others. I don't want anybody to go through the things that we're talking about today. Do you? Do you want a family member, a, a, a co-worker, a friend, for them to go through any of this stuff? Because let me tell you, if the church was raptured today, folks, this stuff is well on its way. And it will happen exactly as it's stated in the Bible. They will be actually be able to have a copy of the scriptures if, if, they've, if they've got them and find out what's coming next. It's like a horrible menu that you don't want to eat from. A horrible menu. What's coming? And they'll be able to read it. Can you imagine the horror of that? You mean it's going to get worse? Oh, yeah. It's going to get a lot worse. And, you know, people can be saved during that time, but it's going to be very, very difficult. Don't play games with God. Don't play games with God. In the book of Daniel also, you know, God had given him revelation of things yet in the future, and then he tells him, even Daniel, Daniel, seal these things up. Seal these things up. Is there a Bible teacher anywhere that can explain to me the wheels within a wheel in Ezekiel, first couple chapters of Ezekiel? Any of you figured that out? I have no clue. I read that, and it's a mystery to me. It's supposed to. I don't know anything about, I'm just like, I, my jaw hits the ground, I draw flies. I mean, that's just, that's just the way it is. It's a mystery, and I, I'm okay with that. <laughs> Are you okay with that? I love what John Walvoord said. He said, this illustrates a divine principle that while God has revealed much, there are secrets that God has not seen fit to reveal at this time. And that is true. And what does the Bible say? In Deuteronomy 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. I love that. I love that. What's What's the other one? In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, he says, Now concerning things offered to idols, we know that we all have knowledge, but what knowledge puffs up? You know, we, we can have all the knowledge of these mysteries, and all it will do is puff you up in pride. 
Wouldn't it be better to major in the things that you do know and really learn those things and really have a devotional life with Jesus in the Bible? Don't let it just become a bunch of facts. You know, don't allow it to puff you up in pride because it does. If the Bible is just a textbook of, of prophecy to you, if it's just something that you're learning for knowledge, you're going to at some point hit a wall. Your relationship with God is going to be sour. You're going to find yourself kind of shriveled up and dying. Even though you're a Christian, you've kind of cut off the flow from God's spirit. It's supposed to be meant, it's meant to draw you into a right relationship with him and fellowship with him. It's not just a textbook. Granted, you can look at it that way, but if that's all you do, you're, not going, to, you're going to be missing out on the, mo- the majority of it. We read the, dev- the Bible devotionally. Read it to know him, not so much what's written there. You find out about him when you read it, and you find out a lot about us, too. You find out a lot about yourself when you read the Bible. And it is possible to be very smart concerning the scriptures, but not exhibit a loving, passionate relationship with Jesus. There are a lot of people who know the Bible really well, and yet their lives are shipwreck, and they're still involved in their sins because all they've done is look at the Bible for knowledge, and they can give you chapter and verse and give you the, the graphs and the charts and, and give you all that stuff. But if that's all it is, many, many people, unfortunately, that, that's as far as it goes. And it's not a bad thing. It's not the best thing. There's a whole part that's missing from their life. Because what keeps you from sinning? It's the Spirit of God in you and that relationship with Jesus that you have daily, him speaking to you. I would encourage you to foster that. Let that be the thing. Don't allow yourself to just get into knowledge. I have to be careful of that. Because I'm having a ball going through book, the, the Bible. I'm loving this more than I ever have in my life. I'm having such a great time. It's like, pinch me. Seriously. I'm having such a, I'm more, I'm more blessed now than at any, any time in my life. And you know why? It's because I'm in the word. And that's the reason. And I'm with him. And that has made all the difference. And you know that. The more you're with him, the more you want to be with him. The farther you get away from him, the less you're going to want to do with him. That's just the way it is. It's like a fire. It's like if you've ever been camping and you've got a coal of fires or a bunch of coals there in the fire and you take that one coal with the prongs, I wouldn't reach in and grab it if I were you, but take the tongs and separate that red hot brick, separate it off to the side. What happens to it? It starts to grow black, grow black, and then it starts to smoke and then it goes out. But the other ones are enjoying a happy, wonderful, blissful time together, nice and hot, staying together. And that's what happens when we isolate ourselves. And that is a good word for us right now because many, and for good reason, some have isolated themselves. And you have your reasons, and this is not to dissuade you from that. But there are some that are hiding. This is just a really great excuse to back away. I would encourage you to not do that. Don't be that coal that gets separated. Believe me, I'm so glad we have this online thing now, but don't let that be the thing because guess what? There's fellowship here. There's a bunch of you here today. I'm so blessed. There's more in the fellowship hall. We fellowship together. That's what we're supposed to do. It's, It's part of it. Forsake not the assembling of yourselves together as some men do. Isn't that what the scripture says in Hebrews? When we do that, we separate ourselves and we become unhealthy. At least you're hearing the word of God. Praise the Lord. 
But some are using it as an excuse. Some have a very good excuse. And I'm not talking to those people. I'm talking to the others who are using it as an excuse. Come back to church. Get back into fellowship. I know that that is good because it helps me. It's, it, it, and when you're involved in it, it, it changes everything. Iron sharpening iron. Praying for one another. Seeing each other. <laughs> I remember when the COVID-19 thing was happening and Kathy and I were just coming into my office and I had the, the Mac there in front of me and we were doing the online services and I was staring at a green dot for months. Speaking to all of you. I came in, the building was empty. I left, and the building was empty for days. I come in, and the building was empty, and I left, and the building was empty for days and days and days. Three months goes by, and then finally, we start getting back together again. I can't tell you how exciting that is. It's sort of like, you know, like when your leg is falling asleep, and it's tingling and everything, and it's like pins and needles, and as you, and as the blood starts to flow, it starts to feel better. It was sort of like that. It was like something was being cut off, and all of a sudden the life now is starting to come back into the church again. Because you, folks, you, the Spirit of God dwells in you if you're a Christian, and that life is so important. Your life is so important. Your life is so important, not only to God, but to everyone else. That's why fellowship is so sweet. Take advantage of it. We have to be careful, but take advantage of it. And not only that, learn to be obedient to the things that the Bible shows us, right? So like in James, what does it say? Be doers of the word and not hearers only. Not in some kind of legalism. No, because of what he's done for me, I want to do those things because I know he's telling me the truth. When somebody's telling me the truth, I wholeheartedly want to do that truth. I want to be involved in that. I want to do what he says. And has he lied to you yet? Will he ever lie to you? No, he will never lie to you. He is the faithful and true witness. There's no one like him. You can trust him. Verse 5, the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land, he raised up his hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things that are in it, the earth and the things that are in it, the sea and the things that are in it, that there should be delay no longer. The fact that this angel swore or gave an oath by him who lives forever and ever shows that this angel's not Jesus. Because whenever you swear, you always swear by the greater. And Jesus and God the Father and the Holy Spirit, they are what? They are equal. So why would this angel, if it was Jesus, swear by the greater when he is the greater? Amen? He is. And he said that there should be delay no longer. The idea behind this is that the things that God had in his heart to continue to do It's going to go now, and it's going to continue onward, and it's not going to delay. And notice what it says there. He swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven. Is there any doubt in this angel's heart who created things? No, he's very much aware. Everyone else is confused on the earth. The theory of evolution, is it still a theory or is it a fact now? Has it become so um, uh, anodized that now it's a fact? They're teaching it as fact in schools and universities and colleges today. They're teaching it as fact. It is not a fact. It is the most fallible thing in the world. Science even says that. Why are so many people embracing it? I'll tell you why. Because if you, if you don't embrace God, you've only got one other alternative. And that's just to give in to the flesh and live for tomorrow we die. Have a big party, because that's all you got. 
But now when you're accountable to God, the angel knew very well. Notice there's no debate in heaven about whether who, who created it. No, he created it. It was a very single thing. He spoke and it happened. None of this evolution, none of this theistic evolution where God used millions of years. No, he did not use millions of years. He spoke and it was good in the evening and the day and the, the morning and then, and then the next day and then the next day. He created it all in six days, literal 24-hour days. He created it all. Is your God so small that he can't do that? No, he's not. Our God is big. He can do anything. Exalt him. Glorify him for who he is. Amen? Exalt him. Glorify him. <laughs> Amazing. Is it still the theory of evolution? Jesus is the creator. Let's just look at a couple of quick things here. And you all know this, but for those of you who are new, be reminded again. What does it say in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Did he create it by over millions of years? No, it says he created it. And then the morning and the evening, or the evening and the morning were the first day. And then he created other things. And he continued to create in that creation week. What does it say in Colossians? He, who's speaking of, Paul's speaking of Jesus, he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, notice that, for by him all things were created that are in heaven, that are in earth, visible and invisible, thrones and dominions, principalities and powers, all these things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and guess what, in him all things consist, and he is the head of the body, not the Pope. He is the head of the body of Christ. Jesus Christ, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. Hallelujah. <laughs> what about John chapter 1? In the beginning was the Word, the Logos. We know that's Jesus Christ. In the beginning was the Logos, Jesus Christ. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. Does that make sense? Makes a lot of sense to me. We already read Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the earth shows forth his handiwork. His handiwork is in the earth. He made it. And what does it say in Psalm 24? We've read this too. The earth is the Lord's. It belongs to him. And the fullness thereof, and all they that dwell therein. But his judgment is not going to delay, and that's what it means when he says there'll be delay no longer. And this is certainly a prayer of those tribulation saints that we read in Revelation chapter 6 when they cried out with a loud voice saying, Oh, how long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were were completed. God is going to answer that prayer now as he pours out this last wave of judgments. And it'll be an answer prayer too. How many of us have prayed the model prayer? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. He's going to answer that prayer. His kingdom is coming. 
His kingdom lives in you right now, but soon you're going to see the physical manifestation of it when Christ returns from the earth. Notice verse 7 in our text. But in the days of the sounding of the seventh trumpet, when he is about to sound, the mystery of God would be finished as he declared to his servants, the prophets. And there's a lot of verses that talk about the mystery of God. We're not going to go all through them, but in the New Testament, a mystery is a truth that God has concealed in the Old Testament, but is now made manifest in the New Testament through Christ and his apostles. There are many things. Let me just read one to you in Ephesians um, 1 verse 9. Having made known to us the mystery of his will, Paul says, according to his good pleasure which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth. This mystery of his will. The mystery. The mystery and I love what it says in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. Paul says to Timothy, And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. For God was manifested in the flesh, in Jesus Christ. He was justified in the Spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up into glory. The mystery of the gospel, the mystery of the church of which you and I are, that is a mystery that the Old Testament prophets knew nothing about. They were scratching their head. They didn't even know about the, this entity called the church that you and I are a part of. And they were even foggy about Jesus. Had they not been, had it not been foggy, certainly the Sadducees and the Pharisees would have all embraced him. But they were, it was in the scriptures prophesied of Jesus. Who he was, his redemptive plan was, is in there. If you're looking for it, it's not that hard. I love what it says in Amos. It says, Surely the Lord God does nothing unless he reveals his secret to his servants, the prophets, these wonderful men of God who God shared things with, things that they had not known before. And there are even some things that God didn't clue them in on. Some of them. In Genesis, you remember that even when the angels came to, the three angels came to Abraham before the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, and what, did, what was said? It says, Then the, the men arose from there, and they looked toward Sodom, and Abraham went with them to send them on the way. And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham the thing that I am doing, since Abraham shall surely become a great nation and a mighty nation? God revealed to him what he was about to do. And that's why we get Abraham's response, Lord, if there's, if there's, if there's even 30 left in, in Sodom and Gomorrah, Lord, would you save him? Yeah, I'll save him. He goes through that whole thing. If there's 10, if there's 10, if there's 10 people that are there, because Lot and his family live there, his nephew and his family live there. He had natural concern for them. But God knows what he's doing, and he reveals his secret to the prophets, and sometimes he withholds. I even love in one of the most famous verses in all the Bible, in Daniel chapter 9. 
Daniel says that he informed me and talked with me and said, Oh, Daniel, I have now come forth to give you skill to understand. He was illuminating things, giving him wisdom and understanding concerning things to come. So finally, verse 8, it says, Then the voice which I heard from heaven spoke to me again and said, Go take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the earth. And this little book is uh, bibliar... Uh, I'm going to get this word wrong here. Let me, um, bibliaritin. Bibliuridian, there we go. Uh, and basically it's a, a Greek word which means a small little booklet. A small little booklet. So uh, this little booklet's there and the angel tells him, go take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the earth. And um, we can relate this possibly to the scroll that was shown to us in Revelation chapter 5. Remember Jesus, the, the Lamb of God, goes up before God the Father, and takes the seven-sealed scroll out of his hand. And that word for that, uh, for that scroll is literally biblion, which is a diminutive, or this, is, this word is a, a larger book, and the, the one here in verse 10, or in chapter 10, excuse me, is a diminutive of that term. And so this, could it be a part of that book? Could it be the last seven judgments of the book? The vile judgments, the bull judgments, could that be just a portion of it that now this angel is standing on the sea and in the earth and he's opening up those last final? It could be. It could be. Can't be too dogmatic about it, but what is it speaking of? It's speaking of the judgment. Isn't that what the scroll was? It was an unraveling of the judgments that were coming. And he says, go, take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel And then he goes and he takes it. And that really strikes me because he didn't say, well, this guy's pretty amazing, Lord. I don't want to just go up and take it out of his hand. But you notice John was assertive. He was told to do it, and he didn't ask questions. He, just, he went and he did it. And I want to ask you this morning, you know, many of us are in different places. But, you know, spend that time with the Lord. Spend that time in his word. I know I've, I've kind of pounded on that door quite a bit today. But be assertive and deliberate in your reading of it, and especially in obeying it. Be assertive in your relationship with Jesus Christ, just like you would with your own marriage. Have you found that your marriage is sort of falling apart? Have you found that it needs some repair? Well, maybe your relationship with Jesus needs some repair too. Because if we neglect those things, it is, it starts to fall apart. There's two relationships on this earth that are most important, and I'll give you them in order. God and your spouse. If you have a spouse. And then your family. The most important relationships are God and your spouse and then your family. Don't you want that? To really nurture those relationships because... I don't know about you, as I look around, I find, I find things falling apart quite rapidly. What the world needs is Jesus. What I still need is Jesus. Do you still need Jesus? I still need him. Every single day, and you do too. The word of God. He says, so I went to the angel, and I said to him, give me the little book. And he said to me, take it and eat it, and it will make your stomach bitter, but it will be as sweet as honey in your mouth. And the, the word of God is like that for us, isn't it? When we take it in, it is sweet to us. It is sweet. 
but it's also bitter because now we've got to share the, the difficulty of part of the gospel, which is the judgment that's coming. That's the bad news. That's never easy. That's always bitterness to us. We don't like talking about that. I'd much rather tell them how much God loves them. Boy, people respond to that usually, but nobody wants to hear that they're a sinner. But somebody told me that I was a sinner, and he proved it. He opened the Bible to chapter and verse, and this is what got me saved. <laughs> this is where I gave my heart to Christ. He said, Rob, this is one of your issues that I know about, and this is what God has to say about it. And he showed it to me in the Old Testament and the New Testament, and I fell apart. Cracked like an egg. I realized that I had sinned against God, and that if I didn't change my ways, I had a destiny. And it wasn't with him. But then he showed me other scriptures about the love of God. And he can wash away your sin and you'll never have to worry about spending your eternity away from him, separated, but you can be with him for eternity, right? And I love that, love that. But the message of the gospel is spurned by most. And I love what it says in Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slack concerning his promises. Some men count slackness, but he's long-suffering. He's patient, isn't he? Toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And I love also what it says in Ezekiel 33. Say to them, as I live, says the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn away from his way and live. So turn, turn from your evil ways, for why should you die, O house of Israel? God doesn't delight in the death of the wicked. He loves people. Even the most wicked people on the earth, God loves. You and I look at them and we hate them. Hopefully we don't hate them. Hopefully we have pity for them. One of the most difficult men in all of history, Nebuchadnezzar, his testimony is written for us in the Bible. I believe it's Daniel chapter 4. He extolled the God of heaven after he went through his period of time and I believe when we get to heaven, we're going to see the nebulous one. Nebi. We're going to see Nebuchadnezzar. And I want to ask him, what was it like, man, having your hair grow out? Did you look like, you know, you know some of those country rock stars? You know, with the, you know, your nails are growing out. You look like, you know. He did. He went through it. He came to the end of himself. And God was there at the end of himself and saved this man. In glory, with, we will be with him for eternity. Verse 9, so I went to the angel and I said to him, give me the little book. And he said, take it and eat it. Now, we don't have time to go there. Um, actually, I, I will, um, we will go there really quickly. And let me just summarize it because we're running out of time. In Ezekiel chapter 2, uh, verse 8, beginning in verse 8. A similar thing happened to Ezekiel, where God told him to eat a scroll. It's recorded for us, Ezekiel 2, beginning in verse 8. He says, But you, son of man, hear what I say to you. Do not be rebellious like the rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what I give you. And of course, God is laying out his indictment against Jerusalem for their idolatry. And remember, Ezekiel's prophesying from Babylon... And he is writing back to the remnant that are in Jerusalem and those that are there uh, currently in Babylon. Because remember, the Babylonians went into captivity in 606 B.C. And it was for a, a, not for another 20 years that the temple was ultimately destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. So the, in those 20 years, Ezekiel's writing this 
book of Ezekiel, and he's writing for them the things that are going to come. But he told him, he says, he says, I looked, and when I was, uh, there was a hand stretched out to me, Ezekiel says, in this vision that he has, and behold, a scroll of a book was in it, and then he spread it out before me, and there was writing on the inside and on the outside, and, um, and notice, and written on it were lamentations and mourning and woe, difficult things yet to come. Moreover, he said to me, son of man, eat what you find, eat this scroll and go and speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth and he caused me to eat the scroll. And he said to me, son of man, feed your belly and fill your stomach with this scroll that I give you. So I ate it and it was in my mouth like honey and sweetness. But he also knew as we go on in in Ezekiel, which we're not going to do right now, he had to tell Israel, God told him to tell them what is coming upon Jerusalem. They were still in, in Babylon in their captivity, and the, and the temple hadn't been destroyed yet. They're waiting. It would be another 20 years before it would finally be destroyed. And God told Ezekiel, this is what I want you to do. You can read the rest of this chapter and the next few chapters after this, and it's really interesting what God has this prophet do, laying on his side, and he's basically setting up a model of Jerusalem. But judgment was coming. And as we see in Ezekiel in chapters 2 and 3, God has Ezekiel eat a scroll, and we see the same thing happening here, and I believe this is God's judgment, and he's, right, he's eating those things that he's going to have to share. And certainly John does share it. He does share it. So, verse 10, I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it, and it was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach became bitter. Notice his proactivity. He went and he took it. And he said to me, you must prophesy again before many peoples, nations, and tongues, and kings. And certainly John, again, would do that very thing. as He would continue to pen this book that God was revealing to him. The revelation of Jesus Christ. The unveiling of Jesus Christ and his plan of redemption. And certainly John, after this... After he wrote this book, he would live for a, few, a number of years afterwards until he finally died in, on the island, in uh, Ephesus. Because remember, he was given this book on the Isle of Patmos out in the Aegean Sea. While he was out there under servitude, under Domitian, they couldn't kill him. They couldn't boil him. They tried to kill him. They couldn't kill him for some reason. God's providence. They sent him out to this mining community out in the middle of the Aegean Sea on the Isle of Patmos. He's there as an old man. Can you imagine that, guys? Some of you get home from work and your knees and your back is hurting you. And here, this guy, he's in his late 80s, 90s. And they're telling him, okay, pick up that rock and take it over there. And you got a bunch of lot more rocks here. We want you to move them over there. We want you to do this and do that. And that's what he did. And that's where God gave him this revelation showing him the end things, the things to come, things that are yet to come. And I don't know about you, but as I look at the world and the things that are happening in the world, things are going along just as God has ordained. Don't think for a minute that what's going on is somehow God doesn't understand or it's outside of God's understanding. He's very much aware of what's going on, and it's all going as planned. Let that encourage you, folks, because... There are people that you know that have no clue of what's happening. They're scared to death. And there are a lot of Christians, because they're not reading this and because they don't know the Bible, they're scared to death as well. 
They may be saved, but they haven't done anything with their relationship with the Lord. They haven't read. They don't read anymore. And they're scared to death. And yet the answer and the, the solace is all right there. I'd rather be told what's coming rather than it happen to me by chance or happen to me by surprise. Wouldn't you agree? And that's what God does. Why does he do that? Because he loves He loves you and I. And that's what this book is all about. He's forewarning, telling people, and this ought, again, to spur us to action, spur us to evangelization. To be an evangelical, that's what we are. We are to evangelize. We are to go out and tell people the good news. Tell them the bad news, too. But there's the good news is so much better. But tell them the bad news, give them the good news, and love on them, and don't judge them. Love on them. I'm so glad that somebody loved on me when I was in the middle of my sin. Somebody, some Christian just didn't come up to me and say, you know what, you're a filthy, rotten sinner. You're going to go to hell. I'm so glad nobody did that. I had two men in my life that were really wonderful. One of them was David Rickards. The other one was Orlando Roman. David Rickards was one of those guys in high school. He was the only guy that I knew of that was really born again. I mean, this guy was really born again. And everybody was like, this guy is really weird. He loved the Lord. And he would say, hey, man, I'm so blessed. I'll be up praying for you today. Man, I'm so glad that God brought you into the earth, you know, that you were born. I remember him telling me that. I'm like looking at him like. But he was the first guy I called when I got saved. Said David, your prayers were efficacious in my salvation. Thank you, brother. Now I understood everything. And boy, we had a great conversation. And the young and the young man who led me to Christ was Orlando Roman, Puerto Rican fellow who I love with all my heart. Pray for him. I don't know where he's at right now, but he told me the truth. He lovingly told me the truth. That's what we need to do. Lovingly tell them the truth, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and especially the wonderful, right? We have to know it all. Let's stand together. Lord, you've touched our hearts this morning, Father, and you certainly challenged us. And Lord, there's, uh, we know that there is so much yet to come. Lord, and we're thankful, Lord, that you love us so much. And we're thankful, Lord, that, Lord, we don't need to fear what's coming upon the earth. If we believe in you, we will be removed from this earth, as your word says, before these things that we're reading take place. And, Lord, we pray that we would be working and and talking and praying for family and friends and loved ones, coworkers. Lord, touch the lives of those people that we love and bring them into the kingdom. Help us to be vocal about it. Thank you for your love, God. Thank you for your love. Thank you for loving us with an everlasting love that you'll never leave us nor forsake us, even to the end of the age which we are approaching. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. And everyone said? Amen. 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 God bless you. Have a great day.